Welcome to the Culture Design Show, where we feature conversations with leaders and thinkers who are passionate about culture and design. Now, let's get started with the show. This podcast is brought to you by Culture Design Studio. This is where I help creative organizations transform their cultures from being controlling to being collaborative. Now, here are some of the things that I've learned. Your creative talent demands a co-creative culture in order to produce their best work. But there's a problem. Now, let's see if you can recognize some of these signs. There's no framework to move your culture forward. You have high turnover and low morale. There's increasing toxicity across all levels. There's team engagement and satisfaction that are on the decline. There's a misalignment between the employer brand and the employee experience. And there's poor communication about expectations and values. So if you want to learn more about how I provide facilitation and coaching for your creative team, reach out to me at culturedesignstudio.com. Our guest today is Aaron Keller. He's the CEO of Capsule, uh, which is a design agency who helps their clients solve complex marketing challenges. They also help identify new revenue opportunities and refresh lagging brands. Aaron is also the author of three books, two in the series called Design Matters, and he most recently co-authored The Physics of Brand. Aaron, welcome to the Culture Design Show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Steve. Yeah, I mean, we were talking just before we pushed the record that, you know, we've been connected on LinkedIn for quite a while, but we haven't actually connected. And I'm glad that we've had this opportunity to just connect here and have a conversation. I'm really interested to hear about your story and the work of Capsule. So th- again, thank you. Yes. Yeah. I love having these kinds of conversations and it's great that, I mean, the more genuine you can have in this kind of environment as digital as shallow. This is definitely not, you know, in this kind of conversation, just it's very rewarding for me as well. Well, I love to always open our conversations with just asking our guests. And so now I ask you, uh, what is your story? What is your professional journey been like? I'd love to hear about that arc from when, not necessarily from when you were a wee boy, but uh, when you first started to think about, you know, your creative uh, career till now. I, uh, well, I was first exposed to the Macintosh computer mm-hmm. by my father, who is an engineer. And uh, we lived in South Minneapolis and he brought us, um, the Apple Mac and I got exposed to that world of design. Didn't realize I was exposed to the world of design mm-hmm. until I went undergraduate, went to work at Yamamoto Moss mm-hmm. and found that this was this world that lived underneath the umbrella of integrated marketing, mm-hmm. but really wasn't getting a share of the conversation at all. Um, it would be hard to find anything. And back then it was before the internet, before Al Gore invented the internet. So you didn't <laughs> know it existed. And, um, but as I discovered it, I realized that this was, this was, these are the people that design buildings and products. Yeah. And even at that time experiences, um, I just hadn't seen them. Right. I hadn't been exposed to it. And it really wasn't something you'd get exposed to an undergraduate. So I fell in love with something that I just didn't know was there, but it was something I'd already already loved tremendously in my connection to Apple and my connection to to that world. And so 
as I was there for a number of years and looked around, my father was an entrepreneur, my business partner, his father was also an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And we started exploring the possibility of starting our own thing. Um, and we did that seven years in there and decided to go out and, and start what is now capsule in 1999. I was a fresh young 29 year old. Uh, I'd finished graduate school and MBA and had seen mm -hmm. design start to bubble up with IDEO yeah. and uh, what they were doing. And I thought this is, this has got to be the future. And also, fell in love with a particular book at that time um, called um, The Experience Economy by Joe yeah. Pine. Oh, I'm um, glad you brought you that can, up. I'm glad oh, you brought that up because that's uh, that's been a, a key a key uh, inspiration for me as well. Yes, it was a big turning point. It was um, I designed some re research methodologies around that idea, around how do you measure the value of an experience. Um, and it became very clear to me that that was the future that we, we could not rely on, on advertising or even integrated marketing to get through the clutter. Um, mm -hmm. it had to go farther. It had to be offensive just to get through the clutter. Um, we had to design experiences. We had to get back to authentic connections and relationships with brands and people. And that had to come from design. It had to have a design component because design does not, is not a, uh, a transactional kind of, of, of way of thinking, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very long-term, um, a very relationship driven, right? It's more about the people than it is about the message or the product mm -hmm. about the connection with a person. So um, that book was a big inspiration for me mm -hmm. and for starting the firm that we started and, and where we went from there. So. Well, I'd love to hear, I mean, as entrepreneurs, uh, like I love to hear the story of what was it, uh, what, what, what began the itch to start your own thing? Because that entrepreneurial journey, not everybody has sort of that, uh, that itch to scratch in terms of striking out on their own. What was there? any collection or single bits of inspiration or motivation that you had to start your own agency at that age? We had, well, when I came out of undergraduate, uh, my father, like I said, was an entrepreneur. He was an engineer and ran an engineering firm that was um, rather large in scale. And when I came out of undergraduate, he said, you should go start your own business. Mm -hmm. And I kind of looked at him and said, dad, I don't know anything yet. <laughs> I just got out of undergraduate. I got to go find something. And, um, and so then, Seven years later, I brought it up to him again. I said, well, we're thinking about going out and starting our own thing. And he said, you know, son, you know, one third of all new businesses fail. Another mm. third don't look like what they look like. <laughs> right? I'm like, dad, I'm looking for the supportive message yeah. now. I'm you're, not looking you're telling me to do this. Now you're giving me all this doom and gloom. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so th there was that. There was also, you know, so I kind of, it was kind of built in like it was going to happen at some point in time mm -hmm. in some form. It's just a matter of when. But there was a call um, that I had with my partner. Um, and we had joked around about the idea of doing it at some point. And then I'm chatting with him and I'm complaining about how the business was being run by the, the leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, I look back on that now and I realized that I couldn't see why they were making their decisions. And now I look at it, I'm like, I can see why they made those mm -hmm. decisions and I can respect that even more. It's like, as you become an adult and, and you respect your parents more because you yeah. realize what they were doing, right. By doing what they were doing. Um, you didn't, you can't do that until you become an entrepreneur, until you get to the other side, you can complain about it as much as you want, but to actually go out there and do it yourself, put your money where your mouth is, which is extremely cliche, but it's yeah. absolutely true, right? You have to make those decisions now and you have to be honest with yourself. You cannot just 
dude, you can't lie to yourself. You can't complain about it because it's your problem to fix, right? What's there to complain about? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. You can complain about COVID if you want to, which is a problem I can't fix, <laughs> but it doesn't help anything, right? So yeah. you get away from that and you start to you start to build and you focus on the positive and yeah. And then it, I, you learn the things that, that make it work, which is resilience and grit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's a large portion of entrepreneurship mm-hmm. is not giving up, you know, and then making it to that 10 year, to that 20 year, to that, that stage where if you want to hit a curve, you hit a growth curve, but you don't have to, you can have right. a lifestyle business yeah. and do very well. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and, and be there for others in the community, right. Employ people, give them things to do that they can enjoy and earn off of. So mm-hmm. yeah, it is. I don't know. There's one moment other than that yeah. call with yeah. my partner, which was me complaining to him saying, well, you want to go out and do this? Yeah. Cause now we should. Yeah. And I think so. that's, that, that, that definitely is a, something that is common with a lot of entrepreneurs that there's a certain restlessness, um, uh, about the current situation and e- either one, you feel that there's something that you are called to do or that you want to do, or that there is something wrong with where you're at and you might have the opportunity to create something better. Um, how has, so if you, as you're recalling your, that story of yourself where you were questioning what your leaders were doing now years later you understand that how does that sort of reflection help you uh lead the younger leaders who may have those same types of questions that you had however many years ago you know you know that you were in the same place you've grown older you're now mature and you understand the reasons for those things how does it help you lead young creatives yeah, it's interesting because you, as I look back on that, there's some things that I've adopted and some things I've resisted, you know, about how much freedom you give, how much control you take, how much you do it yourself versus letting other people do it, right? My father was really good about handing things to people just by not doing them, right? Yeah. By him not picking something up and taking yeah. it on and doing it, yeah. other people would. And when they did, they got rewarded for that. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's hard to not pick something up and do it, right? It's like right there in front of you. I got this, right? Uh, I compare it to Michael Jordan in his early years and when he was trying to do everything and lift the entire team and he made the transition to now it's a team sport. Design is a team sport, you cannot. There are hero designers out there, but behind yeah. the scenes, we all know that that's a team back there. There's not getting credit for it, right? Um, this is a, this is a team sport where we give credit and we have to, not just to our team, but to the, the, the clients we're working with, right? So that that becomes more of a mentorship. It becomes more of a, a conversation uh, and rewarding for taking things on. We love it when people come to us with, Hey, I've got a solution for this. I think I, as an individual should develop this particular area of practice. And we'd say, yes, you should. And we wouldn't support that in every way. Uh, We love to see that happen because, you know, and, and to a certain degree, we look back on the, on the firm that we came from, they created a number of entrepreneurs by Mm -hmm. doing that, by living that way and managing Mm -hmm. that way because people's, you know, when, oh, wait a minute, there was an awakening, like I can go do this. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and yeah, you can, but there's hardship on the other side. Yeah. Let's not yeah. forget. It's not roses and, and green grass the whole way, but, um, they have, that's their legacy. They created yeah. a tremendous number of entrepreneurs coming out of that firm. I think more per, you know, number of employees than many other firms. Yeah. And that's, because a, that's how they manage, which is a good thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, it reminds me of a saying that says uh, you are either structured for control 
or you're structured for growth, but you can't be both. And so (laughs) that growth, that growth, as you're saying, a lot of times that comes by letting go of control, by giving them opportunity. And and there's a little bit of psychological safety. There's the, the ability to take on risk and even to use the word, the ability to fail or a safe place yeah. to fail. But part yeah. of that failing is not so much failing, but you're learning lessons through that experience. And if there's that that ability, and I, and I hear both sides, like you're, you're citing some wonderful examples where that was the case, but you also hear examples at other agencies where you do have this charismatic founder who is probably a soul genius and everything is based around that person, mm-hmm. but then no one grows because of it. It's mm-hmm. based on, on control. And, and there's a limitation to the growth of that firm, let alone the mm-hmm. individuals. Yeah. Yeah, I know it is. It's true. And, and it's each have their merits as a business model. Absolutely. Right? Um, and they should not be discounted for what their merits are for sure. Um, but they, it is, it is a challenge. You get to a limitation for sure. If you're yeah. trying to rely on the soul genius, right? Cause people aren't going to stick around for that. They're right. not going to, Right. They're going to they're not getting their own personal growth. They're going to move on to something else. And I feel like I have the the impression that the younger generations that come in, the younger generation that come has is working right now, entering the workforce, whether it's zero to five years of experience, they're looking for growth. And it, it seems to me that if they are not getting that growth, they're either going to speak up verbally or they're going to speak up with their feet by just leaving to another place yeah. that wills. Because, you know, I think my generation, the Gen X generation, we probably just uh, put up with that stuff. Yeah, uh, and yeah. This is the way it's going to be. I'm just going to put up with it. I'm not going to speak up. I like I, I either I just have to suck it up. But I think uh, the younger generation is 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 more prone to like say, hey, if this isn't for me, uh, I'm out of here. Uh, is that are you experiencing anything like that? Maybe not necessarily at your firm, but in general, what are your, some of your observations about that? Yeah, I think that generation has grown up in a world of abundance and their, that abundance has uh, allowed them to develop behaviors that are, well, if I don't like it, there's always other <laughs> things to go do. Right. Yeah. And so they can move on fairly quickly and it's a, it's a more natural born behavior than it is what we got pressed into us by our parents was not necessarily a world of abundance, right. right? That you need to protect, but we also moved around more than our parents did. So, absolutely, you know, I think it continues. There might be this, the pendulum might swing back perhaps back to the, not that they'll endure more, but they'll realize that they can have an influence and change the environment they're in versus just bouncing to another one. Right. right? Um, which is, I think, the, the more advanced way to look at it. Right. Why bounce around trying to find the perfect environment? Because there isn't one. The perfect environment is the one you design for yourself. Yeah. You say, this is right. the place I want to work in and I'm going to work towards that. You know, and I'm going to have situations that doesn't, you know, it's the idea of an, an entrepreneur, you know, that somebody inside an organization can think like an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and make those kinds of behavior changes within a group. Right. And lead a group to be more successful. And I've seen that show up. And I think there's definitely a, a higher level to be achieved there. But you're right that there's, there is a bit of the millennial, I'm just going to move on to the next thing. Right. Yeah. And we are in that, you know, 15 minutes of fame kind of culture, right. Mm-hmm. You can, <laughs> it yeah. shows up everywhere. Nobody's seeking it. Right. right. When are they going to get that? 
So, right. so share with us a little bit more about the story of Capsule and the work that you folks do. I mean, we could go over sort of how Capsule has evolved over the years, but let's take a snapshot of today, Capsule of today. I know you folks went through a recent rebranding. I don't know if that was just a visual rebranding, but it's beautiful. Uh, yeah, but maybe you can you. tell us about what Capsule looks like today. Yeah. So when we first started, we, you know, the category of design was fairly established, um, but you were, you had constructs that were attached to that, right? Oh, you're a design firm. It was kind of like, oh, that's nice. You know, you're a design firm. That's nice. And then mm -hmm. IDEO broke some barriers, yeah. which was nice, but it was still product design. Um, and we, you know, we talked about brand design and that's where we did most of our early work. Now with this rebrand, what we talk about is we're a special projects team. Mm. Um, so we're not an agency. We're not retained. We come in on specific special projects to solve really interesting, complex problems. So what that means is we have researchers, writers, designers, and strategists that, and we custom build a team with external partners and internal team members to either invent things, mm. to rebrand, refresh things that are lagging. Um, we work on a lot of interesting types of custom projects. We just did our first unboxing experience mm. audit. Um, and uh, so we're doing, we're, we're doing it. Uh, internal um, um, branding project, essentially um, culture branding for mm -hmm. an organization. Mm -hmm. So those types of things we get, we have seven different types of these custom special projects that we do um, that solve specific problems. Um, and that has been the, the new form of us. And it actually came out of our work with Patagonia, um, mm -hmm. the way they described us. They said, well, you're in the category of design thinking, but, but the way you're doing it is really different in the sense that you're looking at, you know, each of the things we have a problem to solve. And so now in their minds, they see us as the people when they've got something really painful that they can't solve yeah. either by capacity or by just, um, you know, a perspective on it, an outside perspective on it, they send it, you know, they flip it our way and say, how would you address this specific thing versus having a, this is what we, this is the solution we're looking for. Now we just need some to execute on that. Um, which for us, you know, we look at that work, we see that work. It's generally not as rewarding. Um, we want the work where we can be a part of solving it with the client, right. In collaboration, yeah. you know, I love that you say that because I'm starting to hear that more and more in terms of uh, folks saying, uh, you know, in the past, clients have asked us to do the work for them, but now they're asking us to do the work with them. Uh, yes. how, how far back have you seen that trend? Did you see that trend start to happen? And what does that look like today? It was, I, I might attach it with to, you know, to the decline of advertising or the decline of, you know, you control your ideas and you have your things and, and you don't show it to the client until it's perfect or until mm -hmm. it's in the right place. You know, um, it was probably 10 years ago that we started to see inklings of this, like, mm. you know, clients will want to ask, well, I want to, I want to see this stuff early. Right. I want to, I want to be involved in the process. One that it was, it was the best part of their day in many cases, like the mm -hmm. yeah. work in progress and yeah. creative. Right. It also probably paralleled the movement towards in-house, right. Where mm -hmm. they could, right. They could see things earlier because it's under the domain of in-house. So I think that, paralleled that as well. But for us, we looked at it, we did it like one of our early clients, Byerly's, the rebrand of Byerly's, we did it. We brought them into the process so they could see all the decisions we're making. Because what we're doing for clients is you're making a thousand decisions, right? Put this letter here, design this to look like this, use this color, whatever it happens you're working on, you're making a thousand decisions. Then you put it in front of a client to make five decisions, right? Or the, the big, really meaty decisions. 
So if we bring them into the early decisions, they just become better. But we have to make sure we direct together and not, you know, we're just bowing down to say, you don't like that concept. It's never going to survive. No, let's see if we can have that stay in the air as long as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you might not be able to see what that concept is. So they have to come in with a creative mindset. They can come in with a control and command and mm-hmm. editing mindset. Right. Mm-hmm. It has to be more for or add to um, when they enter into that frame. And and many love it and absolutely, you know, want to be a part of that process. We've almost had to bring ourselves along and our clients along into that, right? Yeah. To make sure it's comfortable. Yes, let's let people see it earlier um, and show them work in progress and they're not going to destroy it. It's a trusting kind of thing. But when you do it, much better work and much better work gets through, right? It's yeah. not only the better work, but it's the better work actually makes it out into the world, yeah. right? Because everybody's on board and making this happen. So there's ownership, there's engagement. Uh, and I think, I think the innovation is much higher when you're more mm-hmm. co-creative with the client for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. So that, that's, that's very interesting. And I, and I, I would imagine that uh, the creatives in the past that have, that relied on being sort of the creative driving force in a project as they're now bringing in clients into the process, there's probably some new skills or at least skills that they had to either unveil or to develop in themselves, like facilitation and coaching, uh, mm-hmm. even for their clients, uh, was, was something that they needed to, to develop in the, in the repertoire. Was that something that you folks focus on specifically as a skill set into your yeah. projects? Yeah, it has to be a balance of both, right? We can't have somebody that's just a creative off in a corner and then pumping out really good stuff that nobody sees until the last possible minute. Um, it's it's literally baked into how we do it. We practice it internally first mm. with everybody, not just what we're labeled as creatives. Everybody gets to review yeah. the concepts ahead of time and give their feedback and their perspective. Yeah. Um, and the the creator of that thing gets to defend it and talk about yeah. it, but also has to coach that person. It's not just, right. you don't get it. You cannot use like you, <laughs> you're not a designer. You don't get it. That language does not apply. Right. right. You're not a writer. You don't get it. Right. No, you have to help somebody get it. That's your responsibility as the person putting that creative content out there. Cause if they don't get it, then somebody else doesn't get it. Right. Yeah. If somebody else doesn't get it, then more than likely we're going to run into a lot of people that don't get it. Right. And we can't have that. Well, I think so, one of those skills that uh, we often overlook is, is just communication skills. It's not that your idea is bad or is not that right. your audience doesn't get it. It's just that maybe it hasn't properly been communicated. And I think even right. giving, getting that feedback of, I don't understand. Can you help me understand is really, really helpful to say, okay, let me articulate it in a different way. And that be, it's like a muscle. Yeah. It just, it, yeah. you're able to be better at explaining your ideas um, uh, to folks so that they can understand. I think that's, that's part of the battle or part of the task, yeah. I should say. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a different role for sure for the team and they have to add on to what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I know that a lot of, uh, uh, you know, as a design firm, I think you've seen uh, how design has been adopted or even maybe not adopted by organizations. And I know that one of the things that we talked about was, you know, design having a place in uh, cultures of companies. Uh, and that could be whether it's entering the boardroom of large corporations or maybe even on the other end of the spectrum, design entering startup communities. I'd love to get some of your thoughts about that. 
I love to see it when it starts from the beginning, right? When it's there, there's a, there's a design philosophy in the startup itself. And you can see it almost in the early days of the development of whatever it is. And they've actually considered little details that other people wouldn't consider um, that are good signals of that. Um, we've worked with the Honest Company and Christopher Gavigan is, you know, he will pronounce his design affection as mm. he gets into typography and the type mm. that we're using, even in a naming presentation, which has nothing to do with typography, but yet <laughs> he still loves to talk about type. Um, and so it's, it's nice to see early on and at that level of the organization that there's an understanding of that this is important that by this we connect with people right design is for people innovation is for corporations well let's design for an audience but let's consider them in a real humanistic kind of way um and so i love that and you can and you can definitely see the indications early on and i think it contributes to the success or the potential for that for that venture right um in in a lot of ways from investors perspective as well as from um from their actual consumers because investors have more and more affection for design which is a really fascinating thing to say out loud right investors yeah. affection for design but i hear it popping up again and again really right because they've seen the results of it yeah, yeah they've seen what really good design does and i uh, you'd say apple broke this right as mm -hmm. uh, or broke this through in the fact that maybe the largest corporation in the world at one point in time was apple and they did it with design so everyone had to look at it and go is that an aesthetic thing and some people use the aesthetic mm -hmm. they just yeah. went right they went down that path and all of a sudden you see a lot of you know white and you know and all that kind of aesthetic that was apple-esque right and you're like oh they look like apple well that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about design it's not an aesthetic in particular you know it's a way of thinking about the object or the experience or whatever it is um and that and people get there it's just it's it is hard at first right to think in that way and then and because not everybody has good taste mm -hmm. right so they don't have good taste if they haven't consumed really good design or become addicted to design um it's hard for them to get there for a while right um so then the other piece on the board level um what i love to see and where it's it's a risk as well but it's a fascinating one as i see in design getting a role or a, a seat really designing a seat in the boardroom mm -hmm. right and an important seat in the boardroom as you see chief design officers and as you see more of that role of of thinking about design as a, as a strategic tool within right. an organization. And P&G did a lot to break that through and that they use design as a way of thinking and Laughley and everything he did around that um, and others there. Um, it's tremendous amount of admiration for how they thought about that. Um, and they connected it pretty closely with innovation as kind of the peanut butter and jelly of an organization, which is good to see as well. Um, uh, and 3M doing that. And, and it was always fascinating to me as 3M went out to own the concept of innovation and the, the practice of innovation, but they never had design. It's just, mm. you know, it's like, well, it's, it's peanut butter and you can have a peanut butter sandwich, but when you add jelly, it's just that much better. So why <laughs> yeah. wouldn't you add the jelly of design um, and, into the organization? And so it's really good to see that they've done that at a large corporate scale. And it and, and what I find fascinating is when, when people say, well, that's good for the consumer products for like the post-it mm -hmm. notes and the other, mm -hmm. but we're a lot of ingredients and a lot of other things. Why, how do you apply design? Well, you're thinking about design more as an aesthetic conversation, not right. as a way of thinking. And if you have that, that, that uh, constraint in your head, well, yeah, you're never gonna be able to apply that to industrial, but doesn't industrial have a customer? Doesn't industrial have a person that interacts with that? Maybe that the user of that industrial product is more important than the end customer as a consumer, but they're still a person, still a human being that you can design for. And if you do that, 
they'll have loyalty. They'll have a bond with you that can be really, really uh, impenetrable, even you know beyond legal bonds, right? Um, if you have a human bond that's that goes beyond trademark or patent law and everything else, right? It's just it's stuck in your head. You can't use anything else because it's not the level of quality. I love margin or the the line that people go with 3M on, which is margin and more margin. They probably wouldn't want me to say that out loud, but. <laughs> Yeah, 3M stand for margin because they're really good at getting really good margin <laughs> for their inventions, for their designs. And it has the trademark law and patent law definitely apply, but there's other things that they use. And it's the human bond between, you know, a product, a thing that you use every day. And you don't want to change that out because it's that thing. Someone designed it for them. So I love seeing it on both levels, both the startup yeah. community and on the big corporate side, it's become more and more relevant. It still has a long road to go. It still is a small club. And yeah. sometimes the club members like to keep it a small club and they don't want anybody else to know about this. Yeah. I'd rather have more people get it and know about it. Um, and I've got a lot of other people that get that. And so like Moro Pacini is a big fan of, mm -hmm. of making this a bigger deal and he yeah. keeps pushing it wherever he can and it should be. Right. So Anyway, yeah, well, no, I, I think that's so important. I think I think too, too many times, though, people uh, that are n not historically, in, you know, designers or familiar with the design industry or methodology way of thinking, they do think of it as a superficial, um, you know, aesthetic thing or you're, you're designing a product, you're designing, um, uh, a, you know, even to, to, to think about designing a service is a stretch for many people. Designing yeah. experience. Yeah. I come from the world of architecture, which in my view, I just feel like it's, you're designing the largest products ever in, in you know, yeah. it's yeah. literally a human scale type of product, but it is is something that you experience that you go through. Um, but when I hear, uh, and, and even myself, when I try to, um, explain how design is applicable in all areas of business, it could be accounting, it could be policy, it could be HR. And I think, I think sometimes distilling it down to its most basic principle on one hand, design thinking, you know, one of the, uh, definitions that I love to share is just, it's just a systematic approach to solving complex problems. And if you could almost design in, uh, use the word intention to describe design at its most basic mm -hmm. root. And I think you start mm -hmm. to see, just be intentional about what you're doing and you're already starting to get into some elements of design, even though the pentagram uh, designers of the world might say, you know, design thinking is, you know, some expletive <laughs> in terms yeah, of, right, uh, right. because I know that there is the traditional designers, there is a craft to it that not everybody has. And I appreciate that for sure. But I think the design thinking part of it, people can think like a designers, even if they don't have the hand yeah. of a designer. So what are some yeah. other th thoughts you have about how to describe design in, in a way yeah. that sort of the masses can understand its, its value. Yeah. Uh, you can sense things that have not been designed for you as an individual, and you may not be the audience for that and that's okay. Um, and so you can kind of separate yourself from it. Um, but as a, and I agree with everything you've said that it isn't, you don't have to have a background in being a, an architectural designer, a product designer, a graphic designer to take on these principles and to think in this way um, and design experiences. And we've proven that Walt Disney designed experiences, yep. right? He yep. was an illustrator. Um, and 
it's, it shows up in a lot of different places in different forms. We just have to see past the do this thing temporarily, do this thing in a commodity kind of way, do this thing and not care about it. If you care about something, you deliberately design it, right? If you care about the audience that you're doing this for, you deliberately design it. You design it with intention, with thoughtfulness, right? You slow it down a little bit to make sure it's designed for someone. Um, if it's designed to make money, that's not someone. If it's designed for the corporation, that's not someone. That is an organization. It's not a person. And it's important to design it for a person. So, um, and there's just, there's a lot of things out there that are not. You just have to pause and go, wow, this really wasn't designed for people. Mm -hmm. This was designed for the corporation, right? It's designed for efficiency or, right, it's designed for a distribution system, right? Uh, and that may be okay for its time, but someone's going to look at it at some point in time and say, I could design this for people and do better. Yeah. And do better with this yeah. because people will adopt it and will love it. Um, and it'll crush the system. Design. So the cab system, right? The cab system was designed for the cabbies and it was designed for the government, right? Because the government got taxes, mm -hmm. right? And there yeah. were small owners of cabs and cab systems, right? And it was designed for the cabbies and not necessarily designed for the passengers, right? And over time, you could kind of sense that. And once a technology was available, that it could be redesigned and designed for you and I to basically hail something to come right to us so we can jump in and then just sit in that car until it got you to somewhere and then jump right back out again. And that is a system designed elegantly for yeah. us that we can yeah. enjoy, right? That's rideshare now. That's not what the cab system, and even now the cab system struggles to redesign itself for human beings, right? It can't figure out how to design for people. Right. But it's hard to see those things. Right. Sometimes you look through it, look through the construct. Oh, this is a business opportunity. Yes, it may be. Um, but can you design that thing for people? And would it in that redesign actually create moments in their lives that they would be more have more affection for would come back to again and again? Um, and there are plenty of opportunities out there. There's always entrepreneurial opportunities mm -hmm. out there um, to redesign systems because over time, old systems that are designed for something get broken, right? They, they can't survive the test of time like the cabs, right? New technologies enter, new behaviors. We're coming out of a time period in which there are a ton of new behaviors mm -hmm. that are happening, right? So what are the new systems that are going to be designed and how are they going to design for people, right? Right now we're designing for safety and security. We're designing for keeping people from getting ill. That isn't it. There's definitely um, new possibilities. Right. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's a fascinating time an exciting time because of these new behaviors mm -hmm. and seeing companies and, and startups and organizations figuring out how to redesign for this new culture. Yeah. It's going to be really, really interesting. Well, so. we're, we're nearing the end of our time, but I can, I can't end our time together without asking a follow-up question because you mentioned earlier that capsule was founded uh was inspired it's 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 founding was inspired by the book uh um about the experience economy so i'd love yep. for you to when we talk about sort of this uh culmination of brand and experience and you mentioned uh you know walt disney with disneyland as the ultimate uh experience uh type of uh you know economy uh, element Share with share, share with our audience uh, sort of the underlying 
premise of what the experience economy looks like. And, and I have a follow-up question once you, when, when we talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, uh, that book, um, gave me a new perspective at the time it was, it was integrated marketing. And I thought, you know, that was the thing and that was going to be the thing. And that was the debate. Was it agencies that were integrated or was it corporations that were integrated? And basically the experience economy said, none of that matters. That is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about experiences designed for people. So how do we design experiences that can that people be more loyal to, that people want to come back to, that people will actually pay to go to, right? What is it when Joe Pine talks about the fact that can you charge for having your experience? If it's a retail experience, can you charge an entrance fee, mm-hmm. right? How comfortable does that feel? Not very for a lot of experiences, mm-hmm. right? Because it's very transactional. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love the way he thinks about you know services as uh, the design of his services is about time well spent. Um, or, or time well saved versus the design of experiences is about time well spent, right? So thinking about the the value of people's time in that experience and how are you doing that and how are you creating something that they want to spend their time in, which is really more valuable than their dollars. Mm-hmm. So that was a very, yeah, it was a very big piece of our start. So when we first started talking about Erland, this is 1999. So the book mm-hmm. was just out. Yeah. People looked at us like we were crazy. They just looked <laughs> at us and what are you talking about? So we started in brand design and worked our way in and kept bringing back the principles into the conversation around the design of experiences, because it had to come to life at some point in time. And it's also been, it struggled up against, well, is that, is, is experience design really digital design? No, the broader experience it has to be. And in the book, the physics of brand book that we wrote, we tied the value of brands to the value of their experience. Mm-hmm. That was the math we did to figure out that, the value of your experience is what drives the value of your brand. It's not about the advertising spend, right? Advertising spend can often be used just to prop up brands that are not in a good place. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a very big and Joe would love to hear that. It was yeah. very big inspiration for us for starting this firm and what we have. So, well, I know in the book itself, they actually point to a future era, even after the experience economy, they talk about the transformation economy. And that is yes. where people actually want to be transformed by this experience. They will p- pay to be transformed. And, and I think, you know, some of the things like, the, you know, the rise and whether you want to call it the rise and fall, but, you know, like say the, the CrossFit community, uh, the soul cycles of the world and all of these other brands that have really brought around this sense of community, around transformation, around creativity and all of the, all of these different things. I know there was a study that was actually put out by the Harvard Divinity School, and it was trying to understand um, why the church, the American church was losing its millennial members. And I, and it identified that the, these folks were leaving the church because there were six things that they aspire to experience in their life, you know, social transformation, self-transformation, creativity, community, all these different things. There were six things. And they were saying that they weren't finding it in their places of worship, but they were finding it in the CrossFits and the soul cycles. They were actually experiencing community and transformation. And so I started to really think like, you know, that transformation economy that they wrote about, I believe it's here. Um, And I wonder if there are brands that are making that shift to say, hey, we're not just going to provide you with, because I think in some cases, even experience can be uh, commoditized. Yes. Oh, Uh, yeah. 
And, and I think people are starting to say, I know, yes, it's memorable. It, the experience was memorable. It was even meaningful in the moment. But once I'm no longer there, it's gone. The, yeah. the, the impacts are gone. But if I actually experience something that changes me, the way I think, the yeah. way I dress, the way I use products, whatever, yeah. I'm willing to pay a premium for that. What are your thoughts just yes. about that relationship and maybe shift? Yeah. 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 Definitely. <clears throat> experiences can be commoditized. The the trigger word for commoditization of, of experiences is convenience, right? If it's incredibly convenient, then it's not really that valuable, right? It's, it's, it pushes down the value of it. Now that questions, of course, convenience stores, but yeah. there are really valuable experiences in convenience stores as well. I've critiqued them before and then and someone from a convenience store was at a speech that I was at. And so I had to correct <laughs> that. But, um, but yes, the transformative experience is the highest value of experience where it becomes, as we look at lifetime value of customers and, and, and think of that as a mathematical approach, which is often what we do in a business, right? You think about, well, the lifetime value of a customer is based on how many times they come back to us and what do we have to pay to make them come back to us? And loyalty programs essentially work with that math to say, if we give them incentives, they'll keep coming back to us because these incentives are there. But we don't realize that if you actually transform people's lives and, and do things that they actually love to experience as it relates to the category, you can build that lifetime value without having to spend on them, without having to put those, those debts, which are, you know, points on your books, right? If you talk to a, an airline now, right, they've got loyalty programs and they've got these massive liabilities on their books because they've paid for loyalty mm. versus designing a transformative experience, right? Which I think there's some airlines that are doing more that I think Delta is moving in that direction in a big way. They've done more than most other airlines to say, we're going to think about this experience. We're going to have it be. Now they've all run into the significant headwind of COVID, COVID right now, but they were making more progress than many were. Um, but to move to that more transformative experience where if I go through that, that, that you've changed me and mm. you've changed the sense of, uh, of airline travel, right. For mm. me, um, which makes it hard to go back. It's kind of like, as we talked about the Uber versus cab, it's hard to do an Uber 10 times and then go back to a cab, you go to a cab. Yeah. You're like, Oh, this is not fun. I hate yeah. sitting in the back of the car <laughs> waiting to pay with my credit card. Yeah. You know, that they've, they've changed you, right. They've changed your experience of riding in the car with someone. Um, if airlines think in that way and they advance and they put their innovation dollars into that kind of thinking, they'll have a better chance of essentially breaking the consumer from their traditional habits of this is what it's like to travel. It's miserable. I don't want to do it. No. And it doesn't have to be joy. I have, I've often said this mm. to people say like there was a thing that went through culture where you had to deliver joy or you had to deliver this high level of experience. It doesn't have to be, it just has to be a little bit better. Right. In the case of airlines, just a, just a couple of niche little, little notches better. And you will, you will transform people's experience, right? And you'll break them for going back to another airline. I've had it happen to me between Northwest Airlines and United. United is a painful experience. I will say that publicly. <laughs> and if there's someone who watches this from United, I'm sorry, but it is the case. Everything yeah. about your kiosks, your planes, everything is a horrible experience compared to Delta, right? Mm -hmm. You may only be a couple of notches worse, but it's enough for me that yeah. I will do everything I can to not fly in United. So, um, yeah, there it's, it's definitely showing up. It's transformative and thinking about essentially breaking those traditional habits that the consumer has or that the shopper has or the human being has and make them just a little bit better, mm -hmm. not, not profoundly better. It doesn't have to be profoundly better because that's almost impossible to achieve. And then people just say, forget it. I'm not going to try that inside of yeah. an organization. Right. Um, we won't have to go that far. Just do little things better, little things, you know, 
little things a little bit better and we would go a long way in yeah. a lot of the experiences that are out there. Well, right? I love this one quote that says, uh, he says, one degree improvement over a long period of time is massive change. And yes. I think uh, sometimes we can think of just one or two degrees. It doesn't have to be a massive disruptive, like we're changing the world with one single product in one single year. I think it's, it's you know, I, I think in innovation, yes, we love those disruptive types of innovations. And I think those are good, but those are, you know, few and far between what those will be. But I think if we can make things just a little bit better each and every time, I think over a long period of time, that will be definitely transformative. Well, Aaron, yeah. I appreciate our time together. I wish we had more this time. I appreciate you coming on. If uh, folks want to learn more about you and or Capsule, where can they go? They can go to capsule.us, capsule.us, and you can find me. You can find other things we've done, and uh, and you can sign up for our speaker series and uh, and enjoy the conversations that we have. So, thank you, Aaron. Appreciate you being on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Culture Design Show. We'll see you again next time. Be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes. And while you're at it, feel free to leave a review of the podcast. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.